This is Designers Right, a podcast about the role of designers in the climate crisis, the inequality crisis, the migrant crisis, and all the other worldwide disasters we are facing at the moment. How can we think in different ways about design? What narratives do we need to change in order to get there? And what does it mean to be a designer in the context of today's challenges? Designers Write put out an open call for designers to write an essay addressing these questions. And the text curators, three of them, selected six essays. In total, we make three podcasts in which we talk with two designers about their texts. Also, we will address the design sector as a whole to talk about its place in the world. My name is Ainuk Tan and I will be the moderator of this podcast series. Then I have some practical points. All the essays are published on our website, designersright.org. Also, you can listen to episode one and two there. The direct links to the texts can be found in the show notes, as well as links to other sources and resources. So in this episode, we will talk to Ruben Pater and Lua Vollaert. Um, I'm very happy and honored that uh, I'm here with you guys. Um, Ruben, can you maybe introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm, my name is Ruben. I'm a designer. I was trained as a graphic designer, worked at commercial studios for 10 years. So a lot of my experience comes from that that kind of time. And then after I decided to uh, change my practice, did a, a master at Samberg Institute in Amsterdam. Um, and since then, I do a combination of uh, work around journalism and design. I also teach uh, at the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague. Um, and I also write. I wrote two books. One just came out. Yes. Um, and, and can you name some, some examples of, of recent projects you, you just did? So the book kind of took me like four years. So that kind of took most of my time. Um, but I am kind of busy now thinking about um, more practically like the, the skills that I've been learning, um, how they can be applied. So one thing I'm working now on is defunding the police in the Netherlands. Uh, there's like, yeah, a lot of examples about defunding strategies in the UK and US, but those do not easily translate to Dutch context. Um, and I would really like to work with uh, a young uh, graphic novel and comic artist uh, to make a graphic novel to also, uh, yeah, explain like why the police exist in the Netherlands, why it's a good idea to defund the police uh, in a Dutch context in such a way that, yeah, I can basically pass it out uh, in the street where I live or in my neighborhood, and it's accessible to as many people as possible. So for me, that's a way that journalism and design and research kind of come together. Mm -hmm. Would you would you uh, describe your practice as a designer, uh, as a, uh, a designer of processes, or a social designer, or? I'm, I'm just a graphic designer because I use like letters and stuff and communication. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and yeah, also these yeah these disciplines are kind of also arbitrary. You know, they have like an industrial origin. Um, I don't think that industrial origin kind of applies so much anymore. So for me, I'm 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 like kind of less busy with the, the label and more a little bit about um, like acknowledging the skills that I have and how I can use them best. Okay, great. Um, Lua Fullard, mm -hmm. can you also introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Lua Fullard. I'm a curator and a writer. Um, for a long time, I was living in London, come from a background of studying art history and art, uh, and then went into research architecture. So from that, joined forensic architecture, um, and I've developed a curatorial practice since then, working on um, many different subjects, but taking a particular interest in climate change um, 
and non-human actors and non-human perspectives onto climate change. Mm-hmm. And and to what uh, extent would you call yourself a designer? Um, Or not? <laughs> <laughs> It's called designers' rights, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the labels are maybe arbitrary, which says also something maybe about the design field already. Yeah, it's it's called designers' rights, certainly. I think, um, I mean, I used to teach at Design Academy Eindhoven um, in, a, in a master's program called the Critical Inquiry Lab. Um, and I would call myself a designer to the extent that if we envision the future of design and the multiplicity of crises that the design disciplines are in right now with concerns to the relationship of design to the object, uh, then we must consider a future of design where the label designer is applied to a much broader category of people Yes, that may include curators. Yes, uh, like you. Like me, yes. Yeah. Full circle. Yeah, yeah. so in that, uh, from that perspective, I've written a job application to be a design curator yes yes we will talk today. about the text in a little bit yeah first i want to um uh, move uh, to the sound you uh, you brought we asked you basically to to bring a sound that says something about you or your practice or uh well uh maybe something else we will uh, uh listen to your sound uh, ruben uh, uh, first Ruben, um, what are we hearing? Um, so this uh, this actually sound um, should be uh, given with a trigger warning, maybe because we're listening to um, yeah a, a military weapon. So this is a recording of a, a, a MQ-9 Reaper drone. So it's an unmanned military uh, vehicle uh, aircraft used by uh, um, yeah, among other nations, the the, the Dutch uh, Air Force, but also the U.S. military and the U.K. military in. Uh, the border area of Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan. Um, and this was part of a project that in 2014 about the, yeah, the kind of acoustics of unmanned warfare and how the sounds of drones have the can have the effect of, um, can create post-traumatic stress of people living in conflict zones because often you cannot see them because they fly too high, but the sound can be heard for hours on end because usually they... Uh, the, the the aircraft would be used to uh, patrol in a certain area and you would hear it for six hours at a time, which, of course, is a completely stressful situation for people on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite intense, but it's a little bit maybe a relation to the kind of research I do and the kind of work I make. Yeah, because uh, can you be a little bit more uh, concrete about this? So you, you, you how, how did, did this sound uh, concretize in, in a project? Um, yeah, it's, so it's, uh, in this case, it's an LP record. Um, with uh, some information on it, but it's also a website where people can uh, download all the sounds and read an essay about the relationship between um, yeah, stress in conflict zones and uh, the sound of these kind of weapons. And how also there's a history of audio and how sound is used in warfare and can have uh, like very terrorizing and harmful effects. Mm, okay. Thank you. Uh, Lua, you also brought a sound. Let's, uh, let's hear it.
Lula, what, what are we hearing here? Um, what we're hearing is one of the largest non-human orchestras. Uh, it's an ice, ice sheet calving or an ice calving event. Um, and in this event, an ice sheet broke off the coast of Antarctica, roughly the size of Manhattan, um, but approximately four times as tall. And so what happens is that the ice sheet carves away, um, as they say, breaks off the, the landmass, and then tumbles over. And so this is the sound of um, that event in motion. Mm. And, and why did you take this sound? Or we, I think we asked you to say something about, uh, to, to, to bring a sound that represents uh, some of what you're busy with or uh, uh, what says about something about your practice. Yeah. What is that in this case? <laughs> um, in this case, it's, it's a sound that represents some of these non-human perspectives that I'm trying to bring forward mm. uh, within my larger practice. Yes. But it also specifically refers to the text I wrote for, uh, yeah. for today. You, t you talk about uh, your practice, uh, uh, non-human perspectives. Can you, can you maybe name an example of, of a project you're, you're doing in which this is incorporated? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a few weeks ago, I was in Ljubljana, Slovenia, uh, to accompany uh, a summer lab uh, for the Art and Climate Transition Project, which is like a huge European project. Um, and the summer lab was about the Archie Borosine. Very long word to say the age of trees. Um, and so we went around the, the town of Ljubljana uh, trying to sort of research these trees. Um, and what came out was I wrote a report that was specifically about this notion of tree time. So how does a tree experience time? There is the sense that what determines time for most beings is their stomach. Oh. Um, so the, this sort of daily rhythm that we have as humans, we share with other beings that have stomachs. Mm -hmm. And of course, trees don't have stomachs. So tree time could be, you know, what we experience as years might be minutes um, mm. or a completely expanded notion mm. of what t time is in that sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and why are you so interested in this, this non-human uh, perspective? What is the urgency of, of this? Yeah, I think the urgency for me is um, being a human among other humans in climate change and trying to grapple with the feeling of not being able to do anything um, and the absolute kind of resignation that comes from, you know, the realization that we live in this age of climate change and seeing absolutely no political commitments being made to stop the kind of disaster that we go through. So I feel like us as beings that have brought this on for the planet mm -hmm. and ultimately will bring this on only for ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, because the only thing that we're truly endangering is our ability to be here. Um, we need to expand our, um, let's say, like our solidarity uh, to incorporate thinking from other beings mm. yeah okay great um ruben you you wrote a text what is the what is the what is the text about it's a little bit my my own experience how there's a, a big gap between how people discuss climate change and sustainability also in the design world and what actually happens um so they're kind of because i'm also in visual communication what people say they do and what people actually do i think there's always a difference um and especially when it comes to yeah things like the that's design week or the the yeah also the recent kind of 
popularity of sustainable design projects, uh, you know, uh, leather made from fruit and smog towers, and there's many amazing kind of innovations. Uh, but then we still see that people in Holland are eating more meat on average, and, and we are doing really badly in the amount of sustainable energy in the Netherlands. And so, so we have like a disparity between the kind of design projects that are presented and also that the Dutch government takes with them on um, missions, eco economic missions to show off the innovation of Dutch design and what the actual practice of that same government is aimed towards. Um, and I find this interesting because design is a, yeah, there's always a risk of design being used as a kind of um, a way to take attention away from, you know, what are the actual mat material kind of like uh, um, the ways that society works and how, how industry operates. Mm -hmm. can, you, can, you, uh, can you read a little bit for us from the, a fragment from the essay? All right, here it goes. Uh, I was only 11, but I remember it well. The slogan of the 1988 Dutch campaign for climate change awareness. A better environment starts with yourself. I took that message to heart. I decided not to have children, not to drive a car. I'm a vegetarian, I only buy second-hand clothes, and I haven't flown in years. The Dutch government, on the other hand, does not really seem to encourage my lifestyle. If I would have children, I would get child support, independent of my income. If I would have bought a Tesla Model S in 2018, it's a 100,000 euro car that needs rare minerals, which are mined under horrific conditions, by the way. I could have received up to 73,000 euros in subsidies, if I would have bought a large house instead of renting a flat, the government would have subsidized my mortgage and my solar panels. Eating a veggie burger is still more expensive than meat because dairy and meat are subsidized by the EU. So a better environment maybe doesn't start by consuming less, by consuming sustainable products. So the problem is that even sustainable has to yield new products. The same Dutch government that nudged me to buy a Tesla also nudges designers towards sustainable practices as long as they produce new marketable products. The design press pays along because design projects without tangible outcomes don't really get a lot of views and likes. So maybe we don't really need all these new sustainable products. Our landfills are already full of products, our second-hand shops are bulging with them. So to understand why we keep designing products anyway, we have to go back to how products came to dominate our lives. Because before mass production, products were hand made by craftsmen in a workshop. Both the design and production were done on the same roof and their value was clear. And mass production under industrial capitalism churned out identical goods that were lifeless in comparison. So these new specialist industrial designers had to replace the lost personal touch of the craftsmen by reinvigorating these products. This changed our relationship with products profoundly. Ever since, design objects are presented as they as if they were still made by individual craftsmen, whether they're called Philip Stark or Jonathan Ive, while in fact they are made in, in factories in the global south by people who are poorly paid and whose names and stories will be left out of the design history books. This process has alienated designers from production and people from each other. We admire products and we even idolize them. Partly thanks to design, products have become the very fabric of society. Thank you. Um, well, I'm just wondering, you know, design is, is inherently a product, let's say, or no? Yeah. I mean, how, how does your vision would change our relationships to products? So I think for me, the, the design is first and foremost a social, the production of a social relation, right? So, so I make a product or you make a product uh, that then I use but, uh, and that use 
uh, that serves a use value indeed, but there's also a social relation because we just tend to be people that like to do stuff together. Mm -hmm. Whether we call it design or not, we always do stuff together and create things or ideas or moments. But I think the rituals and ideas and moments around those products or Mm. things are just as important. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why the fiction that designers bring to things like shoes, you know, Mm -hmm. that come off the factory line, Mm -hmm. having like no resemblance to to any type of person who actually built the shoe, mm-hmm. th- those those people we don't know. Mm-hmm. So a story has to be, of course, imagined to, to make that shoe uh, appear, uh, appeal, appeal to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if we if, if the, the way that we design is actually a way of understanding social relations and valuing them for how we exchange and how we go through life, then I think we can also use that in many other ways. Yes. So I think the, the product focused is for me more a remnant of industrial production yeah. Of course, we're still in that, but I mean that doesn't mean it has to only serve that purpose. Yeah. Well, then, but then I'm still like I'm. I'm also I'm from fashion, uh, right? So, so fashion thrives on products, the newness, but also the meaning making around products. Basically, what you're saying, uh, it's a storytelling around a new dress or a shoe or you name it. So um, and and of course, this this uh, fashion is one of the most polluting industries. Uh, uh, I think the second second most polluting industry in the world. And I think a lot of designers have tried to uh, to to bring up other other ideas, but had this this notion of of that the product would be out of our social relationship. Let's say, like, how would you envision that? How would what would what fashion designers should learn in school when when the product is out of the notion of, of, of fashion design, let's say. I, I completely understand. I think now, uh, for me, it's a little bit about how do we d- define design? Because m- the majority of the world population has no access to design education. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's it's accessible to them or affordable, that doesn't mean that clothes are not made mm-hmm. outside of these areas. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody in the world, m- most buildings in the world are not built by architects, they're built by people themselves just mm-hmm. as the majority of mm-hmm. clothes are made by people themselves not by d- designers yes so my uh, if we expand the notion of design yes that everybody who is talented which is everybody in the world yeah that, and that maybe that everybody who's making our clothes for example exactly. yeah uh, rather than seeing that as amateur or craft mm-hmm. uh, also often related to what women are doing or people in the global north are doing mm-hmm. maybe we should expand that and think about that if you just make a sweater for yourself at your house mm-hmm. That's also design. Mm-hmm. That should be valued as much as you make something for Ralph Lauren that is mm-hmm. in every shop and is uh, produced in, in large quantities. Yes. So I think it's this 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 uh, disparity between how we value design, yeah. certain kinds of design, and not uh, that this is about maybe. How how do you how do you seduce also this consumer, which is of course the thriving force of of the newness of the the demand basically to 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 um, uh, to to uh, get them into that narrative, what you're just sketching. Yeah, I mean, it, that's going to hurt. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 like if you have a, like a small community, then people will still make design and still make clothes, but they will not call it design or fashion because they'll just do what they like to do, mm-hmm. which is, I think, preferably how we should practice art and design in, in our lives. And we need, s- of course, certain things need to be industrially produced, obviously. I still like MRI scans, mm. you know, like <laughs> we, ha- we, we, we have a lot of globalized processes that are very important, and, and but they can also be done like more responsibly. And I think it's a majority is... Um, like somebody told me that works in a cargo airline that the, that they what they do is they ship perishables. That means things that cannot stay long for good. So flowers and food, but also fashion. Mm-hmm. 
So they consider H&M and Zara, this is the things that they transport on this really expensive uh, uh, air cargo because they're perishable goals because they need to be in the store within a week, you know? Mm-hmm. And so so for me, that does ha- not have any relation to the way people were making clothes before or the people that I know that make clothes in their house or from, from old things that they still have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a whole different story because that's about yeah, demand and, and profits, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you also talk about capitalism. We will get there in a, a f- further along this conversation. Um, you also talk in your in your piece about uh, policy, about the government, the government wanting you to uh, triggers you to to still buy the sustainable products, basically. Uh, and before in the uh, the other podcast uh, episode one and and two, we were also talking about uh, designers as as problem solvers, and that this is a, a great narrative that we s- expect from designers to be problem solvers. And then there were some essays written in which people said, um, we, we cannot do that. Eh? We are not that. We are not problem solvers. We only have a little part in which what, what we can do, or little uh, little power in that sense. Um, to what extent is it fair to, to ask this from the designer? Isn't this about, about policy, about politics? Uh, yeah, well, I mean... Every opinion differs in that sense. I mean, in my opinion, designers are, are not problem solvers. That's like a really strong narrative from the engineering side of design that comes from the 1950s, 60s, where, where this idea of the engineer was really putting the designer outside of this process. So you are not personally involved in your design. Yeah. You, you, you are outside. Yeah. And, um, and I think fe- feminism and, and like any anti-racist ideas from the 1970s has really helped to uh, understand that you cannot think outside of your own body, but your body is always part of that narrative that you're putting forward. Personal is political. Exactly. So so in, in my sense, like, okay, what's a problem? I mean, of course, a designer can solve a small thing that people, that everybody can do that. Um, I think designers are more in involved in uh, kind of, yeah, the kind of cultural organization of society in a, in a more practical use value sense. So for me, that's more it. And yeah, the whole idea that designers can solve uh, problems or wicked problems as, as a really horrible uh, word sometimes used uh, that, that actually talk about really complex issues like climate change or like, um, you know, uh, waste or, uh, or capitalism, all these horrible things. I mean, these are massive processes that are sociological, political, uh, ideological. I mean, designers are just, um, yeah, um, in the end, they are part of the market. So if you say designers can solve that you basically say um, the market capitalism will solve the world's problems which itself has created so that's kind of paradoxical in my opinion okay um we uh we also have a few um um fragments from people that uh um read your text Mm -hmm. and um that they are called the text curators basically they were like kind of the judges for these, uh, these six texts we selected uh, eventually. And um, one of them has a question for you. Hello, this is Aminata Cairo. And first of all, uh, this is to Ruben Pater. I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you for your wonderful piece. I really enjoyed it. I just finished a project working with design students, um, which was about sustainability. So this this spoke to me, but it also really made me think about the young people who are pursuing this profession. And so your piece um, is very strong and it lays out clearly, um, well, let me just read this quote. You say, the same Dutch government that nudged me to buy a Tesla instead also nudges designers towards sustainable practices as long as they produce new marketable products. 
So you make a very clear argument about the role of government, but also about there is this push to create new uh, to create new pieces. Um, and even though that might not be best for the environment, so even under the guise of sustainability, that push is still there. Um, so that was really clear. And, and then you end up by saying, it doesn't have to be like this. And you give some specific things, and I'll, I'll quote uh, from your piece here. You say, designers can use their time and talents to think and build collectively, to learn how to grow our own food, to care for one another instead of being in constant competition, to value unpaid labor, to use mutual aid, to set up solidarity economies so that we don't rely on multinationals for our basic necessities, um, if we are serious about saving the planet's ecosystems, if we want to save the Earth's species from extinction, then we need to stop the insatiable hunger for profit, this endless cycle of consumption and destruction. So what you are asking of designers, uh, what, what I hear you say is that if you are really about sustainability, then that requires something different. Um, and again, thank you for that. And so my question for you is this, thinking about these young people in particular, design students, um, how will you take them along in your vision? What would you tell them? Because I am assuming that they come into this profession, into this business with a certain inspiration, with a certain kind of conditioning, with the idea, I want to be the next great designer. I want to invent new and bold things as I'm going to be seen, because this is the reward system that is part of, of this profession. And so what you're asking them to do something very different, to say, no, 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 that's not where it's at, or that's not where we need you to be. So how will you convince them, given that this is the context and this is the conditioning? Um, and so, and lastly, I want to say, I really, um, you know, hope that this piece is going to make its way into design education programs. I think it is great. Um, and again, thank you very much. Yes, this was uh, Aminata Cairo, one of the text curators. Um, she's a speaker, scholar, and a storyteller specialized in diversity and inclusion. There were a lot of compliments in that uh, fragment. Um, can you answer the question? Uh, yeah, sure. Now I'm. I, I think about this a lot. I've been teaching for ten years, so I, you know, I see also what my students are expecting. And there's also students that just want to get a good job because they're the first in their family who's studying. So I'm sensitive to that. So yes, I'm a hippie when I'm talking about <laughs> grow your own food and these things. But for me, it's more that I, that I think um, I think we um, I think we kind of uh, paint the wrong image of what education is by telling students that they will be famous, that they're going to be amazing and they're going to solve the world's problems. Is they're just going to be disappointed and burned out, and this is already happening. We see rising depression, we see a lot of mental health issues, and that's what I've been. I did a, a talk for the, all the first-year students this year, and I also told them, look, you're, you know, there's like 60 of you here. Not all of you will be in the Stedelijk Museum. Not all of you will be famous. So does that mean that one of you is lucky and the rest will have to suffer? And well, because they know they cannot get a house and everything is too expensive. And yeah, like we talked about, uh, you know, that working doesn't pay anymore, that you make more money with real estate investment or Bitcoin or influencing than actual working. Um, 
So they're also confused, you know, about what is expected from them. Um, and I think if we see education more as this kind of German idea of Bildung, which is more kind of, yeah, kind of maturing, maturing knowledge. And also the art school as a social space where you, where I learn as much from the students as the students learn from me. And that's, I think, uh, valuable in its own way. Um, and yes, we, we, we teach our students very practical skills that they can use. They can do programming, they can do typesetting, they can do all these things that they can, that they can do. Um, but that doesn't mean that because we have art schools in the Netherlands or design schools in the Netherlands, because they were started because there was a demand from industry to, to, to get designers for this industrial production, which is now uh, changed all around because this production doesn't happen here anymore. That doesn't mean that design still has to serve that same purpose always and that has to be the, the 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 goal of design education so i think we can expand that idea about what education is and also what uh what young people when they finish studying what 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 can make their life fulfilling and what can help them to use their skills in a in a way that that they can survive and they can have a, a pleasant life but also that they yeah they're not don't feel that they have to do it because the industry tells them to do it or the school tells them to do it or their parents or the government mm -hmm. And do you have some uh, support for that idea in the whole academy? Or uh, I just want to say it sounds beautiful, and I think it should be like that. But um, what I notice, at least, is, is also that it's it's also an, a utopia in a way. I mean, uh, in in my case, I mean the department where I teach in graphic design, uh, the teachers are given a lot of freedom. There's also a really healthy. Uh, relationship between the teachers i think that's the most important thing that you have a group of teachers that trust each other and like you know i'm I, there's amazing teachers there i'm not going to mess with what they're doing because they know what they're doing uh, so i get some some freedom in that and i think Dutch art schools in that sense can be uh, places where at least these things can kind of still exist and i did a last year i did a semester project with my students where they were actually the ones uh, organizing the classes coming up with the assignment mm. and they were actually running they were actually teaching the class by mm. this notion um, of self organization you're exactly. trying to push be a facilitator instead of something yeah. someone who's deciding what they what the rules are and they're young people they're super flexible and they pick this up super quickly so i'm i'm not so i'm i'm more worried about the generation that you know the, the basically the political generation that has like all the the resources and is afraid of change because i see among young people uh, that they're a, a lot more open to these ideas mm. okay that's hopeful lua we're going to you um you also wrote a text um it's called um artifact hyper museum of earth and anthropocene design mm -hmm. please enlighten us um I wrote a text that is um, basically a job application to be the uh, initiator and the head curator to the world's best, foremost, and only design museum. Yes. Yes. <laughs> How does, well, you know what? Maybe you could read a, a fragment so it becomes a little bit more uh, concrete. Yeah, absolutely. I'll um, read the first few paragraphs and then I'd like to read out the first footnote too. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Artifact Hyper Museum of Earth and Anthropocene Design. This moment calls for a new model of design museum, a fundamentally new typology. Many such museums have been proposed and built over the past decades, yet the museum proposed here will be the most comprehensive, most final, and most qualified testament to humanity's ability to shape the planet. It is called the Artifact Hyper Museum of Earth and Anthropocene Design, AHEAD, as an acronym, 
and it shows the accumulation of human labor to plan a world full of objects, systems, and processes, indeed, design. Furthermore, this museum is located in a part of the world where no design museum has been established before, Antarctica. Ahead consists of all the ice and ice shelves on and around the southernmost continent. It is made up of every shelf that is broken off and dissolved into the sea, every ice mass, every rupture from its surface down. It includes Lassen A, Lassen B and C, and all the other Lassens, Chasm 1, the Halloween Crack, the Doomsday Glacier. It especially comes to light in the spaces between chasms, when ice shelves are calving, a word for bovine birth equally as for glacial death, drifting apart, and shortly, for the span of a few hours or a few days, revealing the planet's ultimate gallery spaces. It could be described as a hypermuseum, following Timothy Morton's definition of the hyperobject, an object so massively distributed across time and space that it breaks the specificity of human-scaled space-time. This museum has already been visited widely, yet its target audience is not human, at least not a contemporary human. Footnote number one. In the 21st century, the most important target audience that every museum should take into account, for this audience will visit most museums, is the sea. Thank you very much. Um, it's it's a it's a cynical essay in a way. Can I? I that is how I how I read it. Mm, realistic, maybe. It, yes, realistic. All right. Or it tries to. I mean, cynical, but it also somehow tries to playfully invert some of the uh, agency that designers as a whole have. Yes. And and how did you did you came up with this idea of 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 um, um, yeah this the 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 the, the whole notion of, of this museum? Yeah, um, I'm a curator and I mostly work in in contemporary arts, which is somehow different from design. Um, but I'm also someone who teaches in design school, mm-hmm. and I see a lot of the students struggling with these kind of manifold crises that design is facing and many have to do with the climate crisis right Mm -hmm. how can we design objects how can we uh you know at a time when like the landfills are filling up uh when like capitalism is kind of like overheating um but what they also struggle with is is this sense something that ruben also touched upon of the idea of the genius, the genius designer that rolls out of art school and becomes a superstar, Yeah. right? Yeah. So some of the things that I've been thinking about, um, ways to take responsibility and address your own agency as a designer who is part of the sort of capitalist system that we all live in, right? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, inverting these ideas of anthropocentrism, so the idea that like the human should be kind of central in everything we do, um, and inviting the idea of the genius, right? The lone genius, in particular the male genius. Um, and so kind of thinking about all our efforts as a human species, let's say, or like of every designer in the world, of every design museum. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also, th- there was a sentence that struck me. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, a head takes part of its strategy from nuclear semiotics. Mm-hmm. The study on the communication of danger in deep time. And there were two uh, uh, notions that I didn't really understand. N- the nuclear semiotics and the danger or the deep time. Can, mm-hmm. can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, nuclear semiotics. So um, let's say the communication of signs. 
um, is a study that has basically come from uh, nuclear energy. Um, nuclear energy is a very effective way of producing electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fairly clean. Mm-hmm. It doesn't use up fossil fuels, but it does produce nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. And so ever since... Um, We've been producing nuclear energy from the sort of fast stack that was built in Chicago. People, uh, engineers, scientists, have been thinking about how to store uh, that that waste in a way that's safe. Because the notion is that if you have particular particles in nuclear waste, um, I can't think of them now, but things like borium, they have a half-life that is very long, billions of years long. Um, if you think of something like the English language, it's less than 2,000 years old, right? Mm-hmm. In its current form. Mm-hmm. So in fact, the danger of storing nuclear waste will last much longer into the future than the English language will exist. Mm. That causes a problem because it means that wherever you store your nuclear waste, um, you need warning signs, but they can't be in language. Mm. So how do you make those signals? You know, how do you make those signs? Um, that can be understood by future humans, future, you know, goose overlords, future chili plants, or any other species that might be inhabiting the world and that needs to not um, turn over the ground where nuclear waste is stored yeah. far in the future. Uh, and so nuclear semiotics is a field in, of well, academic research and scientific research that deals with the communication of those um, those dangers. Um, there's been many, many speculative proposals. Uh, one of the most famous one, ones is a sort of huge spiky landscape. Um, then there is a counter-argument against the huge spiky landscape that says... No, because we will invent a new type of romanticism. Yeah. The knight on the white horse that has gone yeah. through the huge sp- <laughs> spiky landscape to get to you. So it can have a certain uh, attraction in that sense. Yeah. Exactly. <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in nuclear semiotics, I think the most some of the most successful speculative ideas have been uh, children's songs. Yeah. Because children's songs have a cultural value that reproduces for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, think of London Bridge is burning down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Et cetera. Yeah. Um, um, one that I like very much is um, cats that glow in the dark when mm-hmm. they're near radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the sort of field of nuclear yeah. semiotics. Yes. And I've held it uh, in the essay because, um, well, there's that line in there that, you know, nu- nuclear semiotics and the storage of nuclear waste is an enormous uh, argument for people to be against nuclear reactors, right? And they yeah. look at the kind of history of Chernobyl and, and the yeah. fallout that that has caused in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so it, it seems like a really, really mad idea to go on producing nuclear energy until you realize that the waste storage for fossil fuel waste is just the atmosphere. Yeah. It's just yeah. the sky. It's every car you're cycling behind. Uh, yeah. It's every factory near the beach in Aymada. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's everywhere. We, yeah. we don't actually have any kind of plan for carbon storage. We don't have any scalable technology yeah. to really store our yeah. carbon output. Yeah. Um, and, and what about the deep time? The, the, the notion of that? Yeah, because you say ahead takes part of his curatorial strategy from nuclear simulator, the study on communication of danger in deep time. Yeah. 
Yeah, so deep time is uh, is the notion of like a scale of time that is too big for us to think about, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we can think about, uh, well, you know, humankind, it's been around in a way that we recognize it for 20,000 years. Um, will it be around for another 20,000 years? We don't know. But then there's also things we produce, like nuclear waste, like CO2 outputs, uh, that will be around in deep time. Yes. So, in fact, for many millions of years beyond uh, wow. any kind of yeah. little blip that we are There's on the radar. There's a lot of information radar. in that text. <laughs> yeah, that one sentence, right? <laughs> now, nuclear is really interesting. Like, how can you uh, communicate from 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 a, a non-human perspective, let's say? And on the other time, on the hand, how we, can we change the notion of time? Um, yeah, to 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 change our uh, perception of, of reality, almost. Yeah. Right. Uh, there is also a text curator in the, your case this is Marianne van Helvert who has um, uh, 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 a question about your text and also some remarks let's listen to that hi Anouk hi Lua this is Marianne van Helvert one of the curators of the texts for this podcast series I've been asked to say something about Lua Vollard's text Artifact Hyper Museum of Earth and Anthropocene Design or Ahead This, to me, was one of the more entertaining texts to read. It goes from being very ironic and funny to almost cynical, to quite poetic and contemplative. I really enjoyed the metaphors and the visualizations you came up with in trying to look at human history from a non-human perspective. As Lua knows, I'm quite fascinated with non-human perspectives. I tried to imagine life and our planet from the perspective of a container ship once. And I think it can be helpful to think in different timescales, or deep time, as it has been called. Though in Lua's text, maybe I should say there's a post-human or future-human rather than non-human perspective. And they shift a little throughout the text. There is, for example, a footnote where you remind the reader that the most important target audience that every museum should take into account is the sea, because in the future the sea will visit almost all museums. I thought that was very haunting and scary and at the same time really beautiful and a little funny, a little bit funny image. But then the very idea of this hypermuseum is very human, of course and requires at least the concept of a future human or human-like audience to understand its goals. I was wondering how Lua sees this text in a larger context. Is it part of a larger project or a thought process? And what do you imagine your role as the writer of this text to be, since at the end you position yourself as an actor also in the scenario? and you apply to be the human interlocutor of the Artifact Hypermuseum of Earth and Anthropocene Design. I look forward to hearing your answers. Yes, thank you, Marianne, for your nice observation, I think. What, uh, what is your answer to the questions? Yeah, uh, thanks to Marianne for the, the feedback and the, the questions as well. Um, If I can just start with responding to this, um, the sea will visit the museum. This idea actually came from uh, the institution I work for. I work for a, uh, an institution called Strom in The Hague. Um, 
And we do many things in the city with contemporary arts. But one of the things is that we also maintain the portfolio of uh, uh, public art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a colleague who said or who found out a few years ago that for public art, there is no escape plan. Every museum that has a collection essentially has a plan of like, oh, you know, if there's a fire in this space, we start by evacuating this uh, this painting and then that sculpture and then that sculpture. Um, but there is no such plan for public art. There is no such consideration. Uh, and even though for 50 years now we've, you know, learned more about climate change and uh, we've known about the kind of sea level rise that might be impeding, especially in a country like the Netherlands, there's never been much thought as to what are the actual artifacts um, of like human culture um, that we prioritize when the sea comes, for it will come, right? Um, and so that's where this kind of idea crept in that, you know, if you keep going with business as usual, making objects as a designer as usual, making exhibitions as curator as usual, mm-hmm. you can always say, you know, making laws as a politician as usual, you can always say, oh, this fact of climate change is kind of impeding my business as usual. But when you start considering your climate at, climate change as business as usual, mm-hmm. so if you start considering the sea as your target audience, um, or you start considering, you know, oil-drenched buds as your electorate, <laughs> yeah. that might be a, a change of perspective that... Yes. Um, that is worthwhile in sort of getting us to a place that we haven't been able to get so far in addressing yes. climate change. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think that's that's a great thought. Yeah. I think the um, mm-hmm. the question of Mariana was uh, first of all, how do uh, does this project and this text relate to 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 the bigger context of your of your of your practice? Are you going to do with it more, or how does this way of thinking interact with what you're busy with? Yeah. Yeah, this piece, writing this piece was really helpful for me to think through curatorial strategies uh, and also think critically about white wall spaces, Mm -hmm. right? Like there is a history of of the kind of white cube, Mm -hmm. uh, a model of contemporary art that's developed throughout the 20th century Mm -hmm. that for many reasons kind of doesn't stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this sort of invasion going on when you say like we're going to step outside of the gallery and actually look for the white cube spaces there that being you know an ice shelf breaking apart and revealing these beautiful white walls that you can fill up with all the world's design Um, and so it was useful for me to think about curatorial practice as being like an interlocutor between different groups let's Mm -hmm. say Mm -hmm. like who is like, who are you making exhibitions for? Like, wh- like, what is the message we're trying to bring across? Yes. And I think, you know, in the worst case scenario, a, a curator of design can be like a gatekeeper, mm-hmm. right? Can be a, a sort of gatekeeper to like the privileged white cube walls of the gallery that says, uh, this iPhone has the value to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this, this process of like home design... Um, uh, that is made in like someone's living room or by a craftsperson doesn't have that privilege and doesn't stand that yeah, test of time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so made you think about what is a white wall? What does it consist of? What? Who is? Who is the we in the in the museum? Right? Like like who is? Yeah. What, yeah. What is yeah. the role of a curator when it yeah. comes to design practice? Yes. Because I have not seen many models mm. in design curating that actually deal or actually Mm. offer an alternative to the kind of like privileged gatekeeping of like iPhone yes 
knit, knitted wear that I've made at home now, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And does your does your uh, to to make a little bridge to the to the next question uh, Marianne had about that you present yourself uh, as an actor basically in this in this piece? You say I'm a I want to d- do the uh, be the the, the director eh, of the museum, mm-hmm. or to say it more uh, precisely, um, head curator, I think. Yeah, head curator, <laughs> the human interlocutor to the ar- apply hereby applying to be the human interlocutor loc- locutor to the artifact hive museum of Earth and Anthropocene design. So, how does this notion of you being the actor of in this piece as as the writer itself as as the writer also how does that relate to your curatorial practices or what you're what you're busy with in that sense well i mean of course this is the dreamer <laughs> this is just uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a very serious job application in yes. that sense um, but the curator as an actor of disruption or as as a, a speculative figure exactly i think mariana also said that that there is something post-human and there is a an assumption that humans still will be around and of course i'm also privileging myself a little bit to be this uh yeah to be this person making this communication between different kinds mm. yeah yeah um yeah okay Great. Hey, I almost forgot, but uh, we also have Yuri in the room. Uh, Yuri, you're here as well. Yuri Prash, you're one of the um, the founders of, of this uh, project. Um, and every episode, you you bring an historical text with you. Uh, what is it today? Yeah, so this is the third episode of three. So uh, the, the previous two texts were by my father, Simon Mari Prash, who was a design critic. The second one was Constant, Constant Nieuwenhuis, who was well, almost everything, but mostly a designer, also architect, writer, maybe kind of like a philosopher even. Um, The third text is not related to design, and yet it is. And I was thinking in terms of um, what the discussion... I mean, the historical texts are all about 50 years old. And we're now 50 years... It's 50 years ago that the uh, Limits to Growth was published, around 50 years by the Club of Rome, um, and since then, a lot of discussion has taken place, and we're we're actually adding to that conversation right now, which is crucial and important. And at the same time, we're also kind of running in circles and saying the same things, maybe in different language, maybe uh, with different framings, and with sometimes new perspectives on the on the uh, on the same problems. But the problems are still there. And so I was thinking about the uh, the, the political side of things, as we are also this week. Uh, doing the uh, Algemene Beschouwingen in the Tweede Kamer, uh, where the uh, uh, budget for the next year is being uh, discussed. And uh, I looked at the discussions 50 years ago uh, during the Algemene Beschouwingen about the budget, about what the government wanted to spend money on. And of course, uh, the report from the Club of Rome was just published and it uh, was kind of a big deal in the Netherlands, especially because the person who introduced uh, Limits to Growth to a larger audience was a Dutch person. Uh, that was Wouter van Dieren, and he would later found uh, Milieudefensie, one of the bigger uh, environmental organizations in the Netherlands. Um, and so that kind of, that, that, that report uh, was very important in the Dutch context, which is strange because why the Netherlands? Well, actually, I found out that uh, the Dennis Meadows, who was one of the uh, writers of the, of the report, said, if it does not start in Holland, it will not start at all. 
So the idea of Nederland Gidsland, so the idea of uh, the Netherlands as a guiding light in the international world in terms of progressive forces was actually minted in this period because Dennis Meadows thought that we should start as Dutch people. And what are you reading exactly now? So this is uh, a speech that was given at the uh, uh, Algemene Beschouwingen by uh, Hans Wiebenga, who was uh, uh, the leader of the PSP, the PSP, which was a pacifist socialist uh, political party. Um, and uh, I have some excerpts from it because it is too long uh, to read in its entirety, but uh, on the website you can read the whole thing. Mr. President, we believe that the doctrine of economic growth has had its day. Indeed, adherence to this doctrine is only possible if you turn a blind eye to the irrevocable and inevitable consequences, unacceptable from the point of view of human rights and the prospects of generations as yet unborn. These are consequences which, incidentally, also threaten our way of life in the short term and which, moreover, frustrate, if not destroy, the prospect of liberation from poverty, hunger and misery of the millions of people in developing countries. Mr. President, we would like to ask the government whether it takes this position of continued economic growth, even if the results of research by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology prove to be correct or even too optimistic in its assumptions. Has the government included the research results by the Club of Rome in establishing its proposed policies? For us, it's clear at this point we will have to arrive at an agonizing reappraisal, a breathtaking, bewildering reappraisal of our national economic perspectives and developments within the framework of an internationally responsible policy of reasonable raw material management instead of the existing unrestrained exploitation of raw materials and of ab absolute priority given to saving our, our environment, if that is still possible. Mr. President, adjusting, slowing down and applying a limited number of restrictions while maintaining the same economic growth objectives, in our opinion, completely and utterly ignores the actual nature of the problem. It will be interesting to see how many more ministers of economic affairs this country will have who will point to economic growth as a basis for hope instead of a basis for despair. Without a completely different way to prioritize the use of our natural resources, our labor and our capital resources, we will not succeed. Therein lies what we might call the challenge of our time. A challenge where there may be some room for postponement, however irresponsible that may be, yet no room for inertia. No dogmatics, not even the dogmatics of capitalist economic thought, can withstand the language of facts. Did you? Did you? Uh, do, does it? Does it also relate? Because you also also uh, uh, um, uh, select the, the text based on the, on the text that that the designers have written. Does it? Does it relate to one of the the text of the designers sitting here? Yeah, well, one of the things that struck me in uh, in uh, Rubin's text was uh, ending capitalism as a as a as a goal of solving the problems instead of uh, seeing it as a design problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, you can't just end capitalism, but politics is a big part of uh, at least one of the mechanisms to do that. So, mm -hmm. um, and the idea behind 
the uh, proposals of not only this political party, but also other political parties who tried the same thing around these years, was to actually, well, make sure that there is the, this force inside of uh, Dutch politics to, to make that happen. And, well, we, we know where that ended, basically. So it's, it's also uh, frustrating to read, obviously, yes. because I'm thinking, like, well, you could give this speech right now and it would be <laughs> exactly the same. Yes. And that's, that's, that's yeah. frustrating. So, yes, okay, let's end capitalism. Yeah. But how? <laughs> that, that, that's my question to you. <laughs> yes, Ruben. Please enlighten us. <laughs> I keep it short, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just one minute because yeah. there's no time because we have to go and work and pay our rent. Uh, so I just um, I just uh, finished a book about uh, designing capitalism that I worked on for four years. So I, I feel I'm not like putting it just out there as a as a, as a term, but but I feel I understand uh, like like what it means and and uh, what it takes to also think beyond that. And then people automatically say, yeah, but your book is on Amazon, or oh, do you want us to be communist? And what I think is interesting that we we are kind of like we kind of forgot how to think in alternatives, you know, like this is the famous capitalist realism by Mark Fisher, where we're basically like, you cannot kind of question capitalism because because people assume you're like want to imp implement Stalinism, you know, which was horrible and which was not socialist at all or whatever. Um, but I'm just like, why are those the only options? <laughs> I mean, they're all ideas that came from Europe that were then put over the rest of the world. Maybe that's not the way the world should be run. You know, maybe it would be better if people could decide what kind of government works best for them in their local context. And so this idea that we need to make a plan, this is very much also a design and engineering kind of idea, and also a political idea that, you know, uh, those men in suits who are, who are mostly men, uh, but uh, who are discussing the, the budget, this is the Dutch way of talking about politics, we talk about where the money goes, that's the plan for society. You know, so I think that that's the whole like uh, the, the the whole way where where the your body and and our, ourselves we are so disconnected to the the way society is organized, and I think that is like uh, yeah the whole paradox of like modernity, uh, whether that that ends up in capitalism or in communism, but like this idea that we can control society by this master plan, mm -hmm. um, and that will be perfect, mm -hmm. and I think uh, yeah I think that's not not a model that has, has worked so far. Uh, Lua, I, I remember you had a question, I think also in this in this lane about the end of capitalism. It started really, uh, uh, really funny, uh, the question, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, um, I think uh, it's the, because you mentioned Mark Fisher, I mean, I was a student of Mark Fisher's for, for quite some years in London. Um, and I think the question started with... Cizek said, Mark Fisher yeah. said, Frederick Jameson said, it, it is, is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Yes, absolutely. And of course, like this is a thought that's very central to your uh, text still, Ruben. Uh, your essay sketches this process out in terms of design being co-opted by the systems of capitalism that are now effectively contributing to the end of the world. Do you see a role for design to reverse this process? Could we conceptualize of a design that effectively uh, contributes to the end of capitalism? Uh, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> no that's so, so we are still, we're really talking about like abolishing the discipline. Then, we're, then you're in line with me, yeah? No, but that, I don't think so. I don't think those are necessarily, um, um, would necessarily be opposed to one another. Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, so first first and foremost, I think uh, one of the problems, I mean, I, capitalism actually would want us not to, to completely confuse work and life, 
but it's also one of the problems that we see our, our professional and our personal life as something outside of each other. Mm-hmm. That's why it's perfectly okay to, uh, you know, to, to claim you're a sustainable designer and then spend all your time flying all over the world giving lectures how plastic is an issue. You know, this, I see this like this kind of situation happening a lot. And I think that has to do with uh, kind of personal choices. And, and I've made some of these personal choices myself and then you realize how difficult things get. Mm-hmm. So I think when you get pushed back, you realize that that something is happening or at least you're trying something. But I think that's more in related to a citizen. And a citizen is also somebody who is, who is in a professional environment, whether you're an educator or a designer. And you have some agency in that, but then some agency as a, as a citizen. But I don't think those are things that necessarily add up to this thing. Vote every four years mm-hmm. and make something just sustainable. And then, you know, magically this thing will disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid this will have to lead to, into some sort of, um, yeah, really violent, whether that... Co- whether is because of a climate change or because of political unrest but a moment of friction that i'm really not looking forward but that, that kind of yeah has to okay uh, happen at some point yeah can we talk about work a little bit more because there is a sort of romanticized notion in your uh piece about craft you know about, about like returning to the to the workshop basically and, and returning the sort of production of design items to europe where i think um you can also start ascribing that kind of value to your iPhone and to your fashion and the, the way that, you know, the, the kind of systems in which things are made like far across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, a concept that really interests me is the concept of the global heart transplant. What's uh, that? The, the, the idea that care, care work mm-hmm. um, was moved to across the sea, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the care work that we used to do in the home um, making clothes, uh, making food, even carrying babies, mm-hmm. uh, is now you know moved to places like Taiwan, factories in China, uh, India, Bangladesh, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but then I also had you say something earlier today because you talk about social relations a lot, right? Like design as a production of social relations. And then I also had you say something like not real jobs, like an influencer. And then I thought, huh... <laughs> What did you really thought? <laughs> what was the huh about exactly? Isn't being an influencer a job? And can you talk a, a little bit more about the role of work and this kind of romanticization of like bringing work back to Europe in your uh, in your essay? Yeah, yeah um, thank you. Yeah, I think those are two different questions, by the way, because uh, when I was saying the influencer, I also thought, okay, that's not correct. Um, because I'm doing now uh, an assignment on TikTok and influencing his work and to understand like, from a Marxist reading of, of work, where the production of that comes from, because influencing is one of the top two uh, professions by children in the UK and US right now. And I think we should also look at influencing and TikTok. Uh, I'm working with some curators who are, have some really interesting things to say. Look at this uh, idea of TikTok as a place for resistance, but also a place of solidarity. Um, and so I, I try to be open in that sense. Uh, so yeah. You, uh, you heard it saying me wrong, so thank you for <laughs> Now, this is important to stay sharp, you know, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. be specific. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not at all romanticist, and I also not at all want to go back to some kind of, um, some, some kind of like, uh, a work because the workshop was like a, a complete place of patriarchy and, and religion of dominance. So it was a horrible place for, first of all, for women, although, yeah, Sylvia Federici writes 
writes also some interesting things about that, the role of women in, in the workshop. No, but I'm not like that naive in saying like I also use a phone and that phone uses a lot of different parts that have to be made. Um, By women mostly, still also. E exactly. Yeah. Um, but what I what I think is important that that we that we have to avoid having this discussion about oh, no no we we just have to completely go Benjamin Bratton you know uh, ac accelerate accelerate produce produce mm -hmm. or we have to go back to some kind of romantic idea of production I don't think those necessarily are the only two options um, and sometimes in the in the like leftist uh, it can kind of appear that way mm -hmm. um, the point is that if you uh, focus all your energy on this idea of the master plan and of the politicians who are going to implement uh, uh, basic income and full automation, what they call full gay space luxury communism. Um, uh, I mean, that sounds amazing and I would love that. But when I when I see how, how there are still 800 million people living in abject poverty, I think that luxury communism is first going to happen probably in the global north and the rest of the world is probably going to serve as some kind of production facility mm -hmm. for all those uh, batteries we need for all those you know so so at least the, the idea of uh, besides that kind of political pressure and that political movement on a larger scale that we need to do mm -hmm. i think it's also important to look at your own position and see what you how you contribute to your own neighborhood to your own community and how you can see yourself as a designer as a maker or whatever as sharing value uh, yeah, to the people around you rather than always looking for something that's happening on the other side of the world. So that's a little bit how I try to like bring Combine those a little both. bit together. Is that an answer to your question? Yeah, so a sort of localism. Yes. Yeah, an, an unromantic localism, let's say. Yeah, and, and I also think that that needs like a global political perspective that also needs work. I just think we, we need to have both. Yes, mm -hmm. I, I was just wanting to return a little bit to this notion of what you just said, abolishing design huh, as a, in, or abolishing the discipline of design in total. Isn't the notion of design, that we're even talking here about design, that it's called designer's rights, isn't mm -hmm. that... Huh, and like, uh, to what extent is, is the notion of design and maybe this whole conversation contributing to this, I to this um, uh, reproduction of a hierarchy or a, a, a discipline mm -hmm. or a conceptual discipline or uh, these, these, these ideas that, that produce, uh, that, are, that are inherently capitalist, uh, to what extent is that contributing to 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 solving solving the problem yeah i mean i think like ruben i'm really interested in um working towards practices that are more focused on social relations yes rather than the kind of disciplines and i, and I teach students in design academy and everyone's confused you know like every everyone is is um cynical about a future in which you know that pathway of like being the de de design genius you know like the inventor of the next iphone uh, is no longer accessible and also not really desirable but then why you know as a student are you investing so much money and all your time and energy into going into design school right mm -hmm. and I, so i think we can only really win from uh ex sort of looking at the fluidity of these categories especially between art and design mm -hmm. um i see a lot of design sort of taking from art and moving more towards artistic practice mm -hmm. in a way that is not always uh useful mm -hmm. um or in a way that has been achieved in art like uh, 10 years ago let's mm -hmm. say um 
And so there really is an open question of like what like what will the design disciplines become in the future? Yeah. I mean, if you look at architecture now, mm. all the biggest architects are not only building buildings like well, like Ruben said earlier, most buildings are still built by two pe- you know people who build it themselves without an architect. Um, but they're not even building for people. They're really building for capital. Yes. Right? They're really building yes. houses just so those houses can go up in value. Yes. Um, or those buildings or projects can go up in value. Yes. And so in every design discipline right now, you see this kind of deep crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I well hope to contribute not to the <laughs> accelerated abolishment of, of the design discipline. Well, why but not? definitely... Definitely a deep rethinking. Yes. Well, I mean, one thing that I hear... What is still the value in that sense of design? I'm Sorry, I, I, yeah, I was interrupting of course, you. No, no, no. No, I mean, f- for me, uh, I completely agree with Lua. I, f- I think... So I think something that happened for me in the design... Uh, because I think... Uh, so there's a... In my book, I talk about a map that was found 14,000 years ago. Uh, carved on a rock in the south of Spain. This was visual communication. I cannot put it any other way. For me, that's a form of design. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that's like, I think, visual communication Mm -hmm. and design is useful because Mm -hmm. people always make pots and clothes and things because they need these things and they also like to share their ideas in their community. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, like, abolishing design will not mean design will be gone. So, But for me, it's more that because of it's so connected to the industrial processes that now it's kind of like alienated from even that process because we don't even know what's going on with reproduction mm-hmm. anymore and mm-hmm. with value, like Lou was saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, companies don't even innovate because they know it's better to just invest in the stock market or in real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're like so in a kind of identical cri- uh, in identity crisis that that scalability of design is now suddenly being focused on world problems. And now it's like, we can solve this and we can solve this. First, yeah. we were solving the, the problem of demand and now we're solving this. Yeah. And I think this is something that we have to break with. I think this is this is something that will go wrong at some point because also st- the students are just not equipped to that. And I also agree with Lou that we I see a lot of my students also looking with one eye at art because they still can do stuff there mm-hmm. because design is completely like, you know, locked off. Uh, and I also don't think that's a good idea because now public communication is ba- basically left to advertising. You know, so getting like a little bit of a reality check, like, okay, you know, don't overpromise what a designer can do yeah. and, and also think a little bit smaller in, yeah. in what you want to I achieve. I think yesterday somebody said that design has an inferiority complex and, and in, in uh, reaction to that, we overcompensate by being, uh, you know, the, the saviors of the world, let's say. Um, well, that said, um, uh, Ruben, I think also uh, 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 we're almost coming to an end, but you had also a question for Lua, which I still want to address, um, which was about the empty space that Antarctica so-called, so-called is. Can you, can you uh, elaborate? Yeah, f- first I also wanted to give a compliment because uh, you read it so well, and I've, I was really impressed when you were reading it. Uh, sometimes the activation of a text, which what I like about this podcast, can really bring a text to life. Yeah. That I realized that you're, there's so much poetry and like elegance in, y- in the way you write, and because I write very Dutch, direct, and without any form <laughs> of poetry. So I just I think it's nice that people write very differently, and and I want to thank you for for that. Yeah. Thank you, Ruben. Um, now, I was really interested in that you were right about Antarctica. It's not so much about your, because I think we talked about it already, about the way you use the text as a strategy, which I think is really interesting. But also that I have a student that was working on Antarctica, and I found out that we kind of 
often project, use Antarctica as some kind of projection of Western European kind of male dominance. Ever since 1959 was uh, the, the, the paper reality of Antarctica as we know it. Even I found a scientific paper where the name was being discussed in a group of white men in Europe in a consensus form. It's literally like a scientific, like, you know, across from the Arctic. This is, sounds uh, like, a, like a continent. But then, and I was like, that's because there was like no human history of Antarctica. We have no access to its indigenous meaning or its possible natural relation. Um, then I realized in the Decolonial Atlas, wrote an article that actually, the, because Antarctica is so huge, it's actually close to South Africa, Latin America and New Zealand. And they found indigenous uh, like remains on Antarctica. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very likely that the I have written down here that the Maori, the Palawa, the Selknam from Argentina, um, and the Xhosa from South Africa were all hunting in the waters around Antarctica. So there must have been indigenous names of Antarctica. There must have been even kind of ideas uh, uh, surrounding the, the identity of the, that place or those places. Um, which we don't know, you know. So I was wondering a little bit because you take it as a topic. Uh, not as a critique of your text, but more as a, yeah, I mean, you, you do use it as a specific example. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I'm not aware of the specific indigenous history of Antarctica, but I think it's really important to also highlight. And of course, my text doesn't uh, address it directly, um, but it is somehow an implicit critique of this idea that the two poles are just these like projection screens for like, you know, Western achievement or whatever. Um, and I did write a little bit about Christopher P. Hoyer's book, um, which is about the North Pole. And he um, connects the kind of colonial, um, you know, expeditions to the North Pole uh, to the end of the image, which is a really interesting notion to me. So at the, the moment where the colonists go to, uh, go to see like, oh, what can we rob from this continent? They basically, at the same time in Europe, uh, are stripping images, are stripping sculptures from, especially in the Netherlands, from all their churches and leaving them as white spaces, right? As mm -hmm. like white gallery spaces. So, mm -hmm. so that connection it was so of like considering Antarctica to be the design museum mm -hmm. um, is not so far sought. Um, and so in that, uh, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I am also aware that, like this, this idea of like Antarctica that we still have as, as, as like this enormous um, kind of untouched white sheet is absolutely false because there is, act in fact, a yeah. lot of extraction, mm -hmm. extraction going on in on the the ice shelves, um, and it is absolutely littered with scientific stations that are abandoned, not abandoned, mm -hmm. sometimes only there to mm -hmm. make a territorial claim. Mm -hmm. Um, so we mustn't also forget that, like, the active colonization of Antarctica is going on. Mm. Uh, and probably there is a lot of indigenous history uh, that will also yes. come to light as, as Antarctica is melting. Well, that's, that's oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly what I found interesting in the question, that, that of course, this notion of the, the Antarctica in, in the name already is, is, is not very, uh, uh, you know, realistic to what it has been before uh, European men mostly called uh, the piece of land that so I, I i was just wanting to to elaborate a little bit on this on this notion that we are talking about design as well what you also said design is a very western discourse in itself it's a it's a word that 
that that we have invented also in that sense. And I was just struck by your question in the sense that that maybe we should also look at the, the idea that uh, the ideas that were there before Western colonization of the whole fucking world, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so um, um, and 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 to what extent that plays a role, maybe, in also the the um, uh, the description of or the, the future of design. But, but I do think that what Lua mentioned was really nice. First of all, the two pulses, the projection sheet, I think that's an amazing image mm. that also reflects back on the idea that the white cube isn't white. Mm. Because the closer you look at every, any kind of white wall, you will find yeah, discrepancies. What's, what's hidden beneath it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in, I mean, in this process of uh, all the design we've done, all the carbon that we managed to sort of put into the atmosphere... Um, there is this kind of, it is a knowledge event, right? Mm-hmm. And it is also a knowledge event in the sense that it will uncover to us like the histories that were there. Mm-hmm. Some of the oldest like human remains are found in, in like melting glaciers, etc. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that sense, the, the kind of design, what the discourse of design is bringing us is also like these new knowledges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, actually, old knowledges, old knowledges, right? yeah. yeah, that were yeah. already maybe there. Yeah, um, I, I want to put an end to this because we, <laughs> we have. We, I'm more confused than ever before I started <laughs> on this podcast, and definitely now with you guys. Uh, but I think we touched uh, upon some interesting points. Um, I just want to ask you the question: What? What? Last question: um, Design in, in let's say what fifty years? What? What? What would you want it to be? I think for me, I, I actually don't really care too much what will happen to design, but uh, but uh, that wouldn't be very polite in answering a question. Uh, but I but I do think what would be for me uh, hopeful if that that barrier between what is design and what is not considered design would not be relevant anymore. Mm. And I, I was talking to um, some designers that are also activists in Canada and I was asking her about designers as activists and she said, I don't want to be an activist, I have to be. Because mm. this neighborhood is being gentrified. Mm. And people of color and queer people are being pushed out of this neighborhood. So now mm. we have to be an activist. I don't want to be an activist. I mm. want us to abolish activism and mm. design so we can just live. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also something that maybe in Holland, in the kind of privilege of the situation that at least some people uh, are in, uh, especially myself, that I, I, I'm not in this position, but I but I think this is exactly what we shouldn't, yeah, shouldn't tell ourselves, that... Uh, that these things are also, like you said, constructions, and uh, they can also be done with. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, clear. Yeah, Lua. Yeah. I'd like to think, I mean, for everything that design has brought, there is also a major infrastructure, design publications, you know, links to factories, um, shipping routes, etc. Um, and I can only hope that we can also use whatever remains uh, of those infrastructures uh, to help bring about some climate justice. Yes. You know, because politics isn't cutting it. And it is indeed really cynical to hear this speech from 1971, where limits to growth is kind of introduced, um, to hear a politician say like, oh, it is not hopeful to think that economic growth is um, something that gives hope. But here we are 50 years in the future, and that's exactly where politics is, mm. right? Yeah. So maybe the division of all those disciplines is not particularly useful mm. to us. Um, I hear a lot about social fabric, right? And and constructing social fabric and social relationships mm-hmm. in, in new ways. Maybe uh, we should start a political party for design. Um, 
Or against design. Against design. That's even better. Oh my God. I think this was the <laughs> best conclusion that this podcast series could ever have. Um, Lua Vollaert and uh, Ruben Pater, I want to thank you very much. Yuri as well. Um, this was the last uh, episode of uh, uh, the Designers Write podcasts. Um, this was episode three. My name is Ainuk Tan. Uh, the Designers Write project is an initiative of design platform Rotterdam and curator Yuri Pruijs. The text curators are Aminata Cairo, Marianne van Helvert and Florian Kramer. And the Designers Write team would like to thank BNO, the Association of Dutch Designers and Design Digger for distribution support. This project is supported by Creative Industries Fund NL and you can check designersright.org to read all the full essays. And thank you for listening and um, see you next time. <laughs>